Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, October 2nd. Once again this week, we'll have the opportunity to sort out the pecking order on both the WTA and ATP tours. We have 1,000 level action for the women in Beijing now officially underway, of course, on today's show. I want to introduce that draw to all of you listeners, talk about the matchups, the results you may have missed thus far early in the event. But of course, I want to start today's show by talking about a stellar semifinal men's lineup in Beijing. It will be Carlos Alcaraz versus Yannick Sinner for the eighth time in their young careers. It will be matchup number 17 in the career head-to-head between Alex Zverev and Daniil Medvedev. And if you've been listening to the Mini Break podcast of late, you have heard me repeatedly say, I think the top five in the world right now is pretty clear. I think Djokovic has unequivocally earned that top spot. You earn three majors in a single season. You make a final at the fourth as well. You're the best player in the world. After that, I think Alcaraz, pretty strong case for number two. Daniil Medvedev, I think, slots into three. I'd put Yannick Sinner four, Alex Zverev five, although those two spots certainly feel like they've flip-flopped of late, given Zverev's seven-match win streak. He beat Sinner at the U.S. Open as well. I just think the consistency those five men have shown from the start of the season to October 2nd here today, they've stood out above the rest of the ATP field. And I think it's very fitting in an event that does not feature Novak Djokovic in an event where these four men were spread out in separate quarters that we get to see these four men compete for the title this week in Beijing again. Every so often we get a prediction right here at Cracked Rackets. That was one of my predictions last week. I think that number six spot is very much up for grabs now. Kasper Ruud played some really good ball this week. He's starting to make a push as he tries to hold on to his top 10 spot to end the year, but... Oh my God, was Alcaraz exceptional in a straight set win over Rude. You had Zverev surviving another three-set battle this time against the big hitting Nicolas Yari. And just the way Zverev is moving, he's hitting that on-the-run backhand pass, dare I say, his signature shot. Just as effectively as ever, he's back. Medvedev grinds out a first win in his third attempt against Ugo Umber, obviously the big hitting lefty Frenchman. He's been hot. Of late. So for Medvedev to weather that storm, get to another semifinal, he, I believe, is the tour leader in hardcourt wins this season. He has shown why as this year's U.S. Open finalist into the semifinals. And then how about the Sin Man? He played a very, very much informed Grigor Dimitrov and played some really sound tennis in set number three. The one break of serve separating the two players. Sinner able to separate himself, reach another semifinal again. They're the four of the five best players in the world. They're going head-to-head in the semis. That's going to be the lead. I want to preview those matchups. Where are the strengths? What should we be watching for? How did they get to this round? We'll start with Beijing. Obviously, got to talk Astana final as well. Sebi Korda versus Adrian Manorino. Korda's on the precipice of a new career high. He wins over Manorino tomorrow. He'll reach a new career high, I believe, number 22 in the live rankings. And again, this is a guy who's played less than 35 matches so far this season into a final, survives an 
absolute war against the talented 20-year-old Hamad Medvedevich, who we've talked about throughout the course of the past week. Break down his win. Talk Manorino over Ofner. Again, continue to list the stats in what has been a career year for the 35-year-old Frenchman. That's the agenda for today's show. As you can tell, I'm excited. We got a fun one ahead. Of course, a thank you to all of you listeners who tuned in day in, day out, week in, week out. A thank you as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Of course, if you want to know what happened last week on the Challenger Tour, check out the GSP. Damian Kust has you covered. I'm sure John Parsons and I will be on there at some point this week to not only discuss the plethora of pro results from players with college ties, but to preview one of the biggest individual events in the college season. That, of course, is the ITA All-American Championships happening in Cary for the women, Tulsa for the men. I say it all the time. 15 top 100 ATP singles players, five top 100 WTA singles players. I think it's a combined 41 top 100 doubles players between the two top 100 rankings. You want to know who the next college star might be? They're playing the ITA All-Americans this weekend. So you want to learn more about those players? Tune into our podcast. You want to watch that action? Tune in to our Crack Rackets YouTube channel starting on Wednesday. That said, let's talk about again what has turned into a very entertaining early portion of this Asia swing. I want to start on the men's side in Beijing because boy, did we have ourselves a day of tennis. And I know it was the least interesting match. But I have to start with Carlos Alcaraz. I know that's a little bit mainstream of a decision for me here on today's show, but oh my God, like it was breathtaking. His 6-4-6-2 victory over Casper Ruud because you hear that scoreline. If you didn't watch the match, you think to yourself, oh, Carlos Carlos. And to his credit, Carlos absolutely Carlos. But he had to double dose of Carlos because Casper Ruud just put the pressure on Alcaraz from the start. And look, Alcaraz came out swinging. He immediately forces a break point in Casper Ruud's first service game. Ruud digs himself out of that, finds himself holding for one love. He then breaks Alcaraz to take a two-love lead. Ultimately, you know, again, contested service games for each of these guys throughout the early portions of the match. They were just swinging so freely from the baseline. And again, he's a superhero. It's video game-like watching Carlos Alcaraz maneuver himself around the court. It just feels like he hits turbo whenever he wants to on his controller to get to whatever ball. Kasparud hit. Kasparud was unloading on forehands. You could hear an additional grunt out of Rude because of how hard he was swinging on that backhand wing, trying to produce depth, trying to pressure Alcaraz in the backhand corner. I thought early on Rude did a particularly good job of attacking that Alcaraz forehand as well. I think it is a bigger backswing for Carlos. So when you can get pace into that wing, he will either A, pop a ball up or B, end up shanking a ball uh, because he will continue to try to take a big cut because there are moments when he connects anyways and then you just clap your racket and say that's why this kid is a generational talent. But then Alcaraz breaks back 
and he holds for three all after face uh, fa- uh was it holding for three all yeah I think he holds for three all after facing break points and you know again then he gets the break lead from there for four three and holds for five three and you know set point ace out wide to close out the first set six four it's just incredible because again Casper was hitting the ball so cleanly. Uh, it just with how heavy Alcaraz hits the ball, the depth of that Alcaraz backhand, it felt like it neutralized the Casper root slice. Like Casper could not play slice on the backhand wing. That play was taken away because every time he would, that ball would either drift on him a little bit wide, which is how he ended up seeding the second break to Alcaraz in set number two. Or, you know, again, you can't slice against Alcaraz because now he has a forehand. And when he has a forehand, as we like to say on this show, you're just fucked if you're his opponent. I mean... I said this yesterday, so I won't do the full extended rant again, but you look at what Carlos Alcaraz has accomplished this season now. He's a collective 61-7, and winning 90% of his matches. He's made the semifinals in 12 of the 14 events that he's played. Let me say that again, semifinals in 12 of the 14 events that he's played. Eight total finals, six total titles, including a slam title, five sets over Djokovic at Wimbledon. Again, is it the greatest season of all time? Just so all of you are, because it's flirting in that conversation. We talked about this yesterday, the 90% win percentage club in a single season, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Borg. Alcaraz is doing this at 20. Here's the thing. In those Federer, Djokovic, and by the way, Djokovic quietly in the midst of sort of one of those seasons this year, he just hasn't racked up enough wins for it to be considered an all-time season because at this age, why play all these events when he doesn't need to? Anyways, the difference is Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, Borg, not only were they getting to the final in over 50% of their events, much like Alcaraz is, they were also winning over 50% of their events in those single seasons. So, It's not the all-time Mount Rushmore season. It's in the conversation. It's certainly the finest ATP season I have ever seen from a 20-year-old. And yes, that includes young Nadal, who I was a little young to remember perfectly. But I do think at this point, Alcaraz has surpassed his age 20. I think he surpassed Djokovic's age 20 as well. Again, we'll look at that full conversation after Australia next year. But oh my God. I mean, again, Rude's a top 10 player. And Alcaraz just dusted him. You know, was down down four two, and yet I shouldn't say dusted him. It was just it was never in doubt. And now again, Alcaraz nine and three against top ten players this year. Twenty two and six against the top twenty. He's twenty years old again. You look at those numbers compared to his ATP peers in terms of top twenty wins overall in the season. He's got the most top ten wins on the season. He trails just Djokovic now. That feels about right. That's where Carlos Alcaraz belongs in this conversation again. Was exceptional in a 4-2 win over Kasparud. And it was a good win, a good week for Kasparud to get a couple of wins under his belt, to win a 7-6 third set down for love against Echeverry in that third set breaker. Rude's fighting for his top 10 life. Alex Virov has no points to defend the rest of this season. Rude made the finals of the tour finals last year, where, by the way, right now he's not going to make the tour finals. He's in 10th place. He trails 8th place Holger Runa by about 400 points, 395 to be specific. Now, there are some points certainly left on the table, but Rude needed this run to steady the ship. Again, he's fighting for his top 10 life. He's currently 155 points up on Zverev in the, at, in the number 9 spot. 
a thousand points ish, a little over nine hundred, I should say, above Tiafo, who's in eleventh. Same with Demonauer, who's five points behind Tiafo. Tommy Paul, thirty points behind Tiafo. He's pretty safe for that number 10 spot, but he's going to have to hold on tight for 10 because I think the rest of the spots may elude him the rest of this season, barring some sort of significant run. And again, starting to plant the seeds of it this week in Beijing. Good result for him. You know, obviously now he's going to face the Sin Man, Yannick Sinner, and Sinner ultimately advancing 6 4 3 6 6 2 over Grigor Dimitrov. Look, Grigor played stellar. I, I look at the ATP stats. I always think they undersell the unforced errors. I will say I think they got the error count right. Grigor was going after every forehand he saw and ultimately hits 31 winners, two sinners, 27. Sinner, 3 of 15 on breakpoint chances. Pretty sure he was 0 of 8 on breakpoints in the second set. For what it's worth, Dimitrov just 1 of 8 on breakpoint chances, so both guys struggling a little bit. But that spoke to the physicality of this match. I continue to think Sinner just gets more and more impressive in the corners. His ability to hit the forehand on the slide with depth cross-court. You know, again, ultimately his pace did overwhelm Grigor Dimitrov. Every time Dimitrov threw a slice, he was just seeding a 2% deficit in the rally to Sinner. Again, eventually, particularly in set number three, those 2% added up. I thought for a guy who struggled physically early on in this event against Evans, again, to beat Nishioka decisively, to not have any physical issues really in this three-set match against Dimitrov, it's a good win for the Sin Man. And you look for Yannick Sinner now overall in the year. He's fourth in the points race by a pretty comfortable margin, about a thousand point lead on Andre Rublev. Now he's currently sitting sixth in the live rankings. He's less than a hundred points behind Stefano Tsitsipas, 50 points behind Holger Runa. So 60 points behind Tsitsipas for those of you curious. Again, the lead between he and fourth in the points race in Rublev is 1,000 points. I would be shocked to see Yannick Sinner end the year in the rankings lower than four. I think he'll end at four. I think Zverev is going to catch Rublev, who he's within 300 of, and finish fifth. And I think the top five will bear itself out pretty clearly in the rankings. You look for Yannick Sinner now overall this season. Has he reached the semifinals in 12 of his 14 events the way Alcaraz has? No, but he's 47-13 and 13 overall, fourth in wins, trailing just Alcaraz, Medvedev, and Zverev in terms of total tour-level wins this season. You look for him in terms of semifinals now made this year. He's into his eighth semifinal in 16 total events. He's made four different finals, won two titles this year. You look for him uh, again in beating Grigor Dimitrov, top 20 players. Sinner now, I believe, eight and seven against top 20 opponents. He's four and five against the top 10. It's a pretty solid year for the 22-year-old, who I know didn't make a slam final, but he did win his first Masters 1000 level event. He did make a, another final at a Masters event in Miami, semifinals in Indian Wells, in Monte Carlo. You look at his slam results, round of 16, obviously, Canada uh, in Australia, U.S. Open, semifinal Wimbledon loss to Djokovic, disappointing loss to Altmaier at Roland Garros, really his only bad loss of the season in a relevant event. It's been a great year for the 22-year-old. He's got one step left to climb. It's the step every player looks to climb. It's the hardest step, the highest mountain to reach in the in professional tennis. It's win a slam title. That's the only question we have left. And 
again, I do want to talk about that matchup, what makes it so spicy with Alcaraz, uh, Sinner going head-to-head again for those who forgot the career record. 4-3 overall, Alcaraz wins. It's 1-1 this season. Alcaraz a 6-3 win over Sinner in Indian Wells. Sinner responding with a 6-7, 6-4, 6-2 win at the next event in Miami. You look at the career hard court matchups between the two. It's a 3-1 advantage to Alcaraz. Alcaraz wins in Paris. The U.S. Open in Indian Wells against Sinner. That win in Miami. Sinner the win at Wimbledon. Umag as well. They also played on clay in a challenger back in 2019. Three-set win for Alcaraz. Margins are always extraordinarily thin between these two, and there are a couple of reasons for that. A, Sinner has the power to disrupt Alcaraz's rhythm. Sinner sees that ball coming into his forehand wing, coming into his backhand wing, and you know, kind of tips his cap and says, "Okay, let's finally someone who can play at this speed. Let's rock and roll." And that pace, as I alluded to, into that Alcaraz forehand wing because his backswing can be a little bit big. That will produce some short balls for Sinner to attack behind. That will produce some errors or coax them out of the world number two. I also think backhand to backhand, unlike Casper Ruud, Yannick Sinner looks at Carlos Alcaraz and probably thinks, my backhand's better than yours. If nothing else, it's equal on that wing. Now again, Alcaraz's proficiency with the drop shot, his comfort level moving forward, his fluidity at the net, I think all those things are a little bit better, a little bit more developed, a little bit more natural than Sinner, but Sinner has worked in developing those shots, and I do think he mixes in the drop shot more. I do think he is now a good volleyer, knows where to go, what to do, how to react. Again, I think Alcaraz's push moving backwards to knock off an overhead might be the best we've seen in tennis in 20 years, Um, but Yannick Sinner's overhead is fine. They both are two of the top five returners on the ATP Tour, both put a ton of returns in play. I actually think while Alcaraz has a little bit more pop on the return of serve, Sinner puts more returns in play with good enough depth to give himself a look in the points that he plays. Again, Alcaraz will rip more winners off the return of serve, but he will also subsequently produce more errors, particularly when pressured by pace on that return of serve. Again, Sinner can exchange forehand cross-court with Alcaraz in a way few players can. Alcaraz can do more things to get Sinner stretched into the outer thirds. I do think Sinner will find the backhand corner for Alcaraz with more ease because the way Sinner gets outside the ball on that side is just elite. Alcaraz a little flatter on the backhand wing, but boy, has he produced better and better depth and the depth he produced against Kasper Ruud, again, elite Sinner's had the more physical pathway to get to this Beijing semifinal, the three sets against Dimitrov and Evans versus Alcaraz, who's won in straights pretty comfortably against Hoffman, Musetti, and Rude. Hasn't spent more than an hour 45 on court in any of his matches, and yet Sinner will bring the heat. Again, Sinner always comes out firing in these matchups and always does find a way to at least disrupt Alcaraz's rhythm with his pace for a solid 15-minute stretch. Now, the first serve will have to be there for Yannick Sinner because he's going to need a way to find some cheap points. I just think physically that is the biggest difference between those two is Alcaraz. There's just a strength, a fluidity, and a durability that Yannick Sinner 
has not been able to match thus far in his career, even if he does continue to get stronger, faster, more fluid with every passing season. Oh, it's a quicker court. But man, I mean, ugh. watching Alcaraz play against Casper, it was the best thing I saw over the last 24 hours. Again, it's agonizing. This is why I think the match is being played at either 4.30 a.m. I know, I think Medvedev-Zverev is the 4.30 a.m. Eastern time match. Uh, Alcaraz Center, the 7.30 a.m. Eastern time match. I'm going to be up for both. I'm going to try to live tweet them both. I may doze between the Zverev-Medvedev match because that's going to be a slower pace. We'll get to it in a second. But <sighs> I went back and watched their Miami match. And what Center did so well was push forward and attack through that Alcaraz forehand wing. I think this Beijing surface gives him the opportunity to do precisely that. I just think Alcaraz right now is locked in. So I'm going to take Carl. No, I've, I'm going to take Carlos in a tight three. Carlos six four in the third. This one's going to be fun. Again, set your alarms, eat your breakfast as this match unfolds early on. Maybe sneak yourself a little. You know, have the screen open as people are working their way into the office early in the workday because I do think this one's going to go until at least ten a.m. Eastern time. We're going to get a full two and a half hours out of this. Give me Alcaraz in a tight three. But, man, am I excited for that matchup tomorrow. And I'm also extraordinarily excited about Zverev Medvedev Part 17. There's a world in a parallel universe where this is the defining matchup right now on the ATP Tour. Obviously, the emergence of Alcaraz changes the calculus of everything moving forward. But there was a window, 2019 to end of that COVID 2020 season where it felt like, okay, it might be these guys' world. And at that time, Tsitsipas probably belonged in that tier of conversation, but certainly with Zverev making a U.S. Open final, served for the match against Dominic Team, even if he have never ultimately got to match point with Medvedev making that thrilling U.S. Open final five-set match against Rafael Nadal in 2019 continuing to show up with success in Australia. Then he wins in New York 2021. Zverev takes the gold medal right 2021 as well. There was a little three-year window where it felt like, all right, is, you know, they're all, they're both, I think, winning tour final finals in that stretch as well. And in fact, in the 2021 tour finals, Zverev beats Medvedev in that very final four and four. Look, Medvedev's 27, Zverev's 26. These are two guys in the prime of their career. You look at their numbers compared to the rest of this field. Zverev, by the way, into his 60th career tour semifinal overall. He's still just 26 years old. That speaks to the pace he is already on. He will be a Hall of Famer if he wins a slam by his credentials. Now, obviously, there are off-the-court issues that cloud that success in terms of the Hall of Fame discussion. But in terms of the statistics themselves, it's He's a slam title away from being a sure, a statistical, unequivocal Hall of Famer. And obviously Medvedev's reached world number one. He's won a slam title, reached other slam finals as well. I think when all is said and done, his resume will be pretty secure 
in securing his spot in the Hall of Fame as well. Look, it's not like it's been lopsided one way or the other in this matchup. Now, it has been in the sense that they've each gone on streaks. Zverev wins five of the first six. Medvedev goes on to win eight of the next nine. Zverev breaks that streak finally with a win in Cincinnati, 6-4 in the third earlier this summer. By the way, this year, 3-1 Medvedev leads, wins in three sets, 7-5 in the third in Indian Wells, 7-6 in the third in Monte Carlo, straight sets in Rome. Zverev, again, the 6-4 in the third win in Cincinnati. And again, what does that say? Three of their four matchups this year have gone to a third set, four of their last six matchups, and five of their last eight matchups overall that have been three sets. Six of their last 10 matchups have gone three sets. There are so many similarities between these two. I thought they were going to define a generation, the next generation of male superstar, which is you have to be six foot six and superhumanly fluid at that size to be the elite of the elite in the pro tennis world. Obviously, again, introduction of Alcaraz changes that calculus, but with how well Zverev move, uh, Zverev and Medvedev move at that size, what that length allows them to do from the baseline in terms of not only extending rallies, but it, you know, that extra wingspan allows them to produce that extra MPH when you least expect it. Obviously, when you're 6'6", talk about producing extra MPH. Not only can they match you physically, they each have the benefit of being 6'6", and raining down 130 serves upon their opponents to win free points for themselves as well. Both of them shaky forehands at times in terms of finishing points, but Backhand to backhand, you'll take their backhands against just about any opponent. Neither the most natural. I actually think Medvedev is a pretty natural volleyer. He just doesn't do it that frequently. Zverev has worked extraordinarily hard to become, I think, a competent volleyer. And that has been a play he now uses to try and hit himself out of trouble and weather any nerves he may be feeling. And because he does have the weapons he does, that play has turned so beneficial for him. Again, you're going checkmark to checkmark. Serves probably a draw. Zverev a little bit more consistent with the second serve of late. Medvedev. I mean, Medvedev's had some double fault issues, but I, I don't know. Like, I'd say it's a draw. I'd say it's a draw on the return of serve. They're both generational returners. Put a ton of balls in play. Not afraid to cede six feet of baseline, 12 feet of baseline space to ensure their return goes in play. But because they are so strong and so long, as long as they get a clean rip on the ball, the ball is going service line or deeper. Forehand cross court, both are susceptible to making errors. But again, backhands cross court, I trust each of them. I probably like Medvedev's touch on the drop shot, the slice, I think it's a little bit more natural. I think there's more bite to it. I think there's a little more more drive to the Zverev ball, though. And Again, I think he hits through courts a little bit more easily. <sighs> it's a hell of a matchup. Again, Zverev comes in having won seven in a row. He gets a three-set win over Yari. Probably should have won that match in straight sets. Again, credit to Yari, who just kept on swinging. His serve, his forehand are going to keep him in every match still. Zverev hit that on the run backhand down the line passing shot about six separate times as winners. Medvedev, nine double faults, but again, ultimately 6-4-3-6-6-1. He pulls away from Umber in that third. They traded breaks. Medvedev went 2-1 up. Umber broke back for 1-2. Medvedev takes the final four games of the match. Again, he's your season leader and hard court wins. It's the right four players. Medvedev, 67% favorite. Alcaraz, 63.1% according to the Tennis Abstract singles forecast. I test-wise, Zverev's playing better 
than Medvedev right now. Though Medvedev, a little less wear and tear on the body again. Zverev playing last week, winning that title, I believe, in Chengdu. I'm going to go Alcaraz-Zverev final. I don't feel great about it. Again, I think one of the lesser trajectories is going to win. I'm going to go Zverev over Medvedev. Again, tight three sets as it always in between is between those two. I'll take Zverev 6-3 in the third. I'll take Alcaraz 6-4 in the third. I just hope we get the matches we deserve because, again, talk about outstanding battles, in my opinion, for the top five players in the world. And they're playing here on Monday, October 2nd. Hard to ask for more as a tennis fan. That's what's going on on the men's side of things in Beijing. Let's... Head on over to the women's side. We'll stay in the country. We'll stay in the city, though. Again, first round now completely in the books in our 1,000-level women's action happening this week. We had four seeds knocked out in round number one, five seeds knocked out thus far overall. Run you through those upsets and rapid fire through the results we've seen thus far here. You look in the first round, the biggest upset, certainly Angelina Kalinina. She got blitzed in about 25 minutes by eighth-seeded Wimbledon champion Marketa Vondrusova. Drops that first set 6-1. Kalinina gets a little bit more aggressive with her first serve, a little bit more aggressive with her backhand. She just started frustrating the hell out of Marketa Vondrusova, who really should have won that match in straights. But once she dropped that second set, you could just tell Von Trosva started slapping balls down the line. The unforced errors really started to pile up. And that's a testament to, again, the physicality, the consistency of Kalinina. 6-1 in the third. She knocks out the number eight seed. You also had Mira and Driva 2-2 two two over San Diego champion Barbara Krachikova. That, I think, officially eliminated Krachikova from the year-end finals race, where, by the way, we have 12 total players still alive. We'll get to that at the end of our Beijing recap here. 2-2. Uh, two and two. Talk about a win for the 16-year-old. Kind of needed it, right? When's the last time we've talked Andriva buzz? Andriva up to a new career high, 55. As a result of the victory, had to come through qualifying just to get into the main draw here in Beijing. Probably her biggest win. Not probably. It's her biggest result since Wimbledon, where she beat Krachikova, where she beat Potapova as a qualifier to get to round number four. And again, she's looking for any points she can. It's all free ads for the 16-year-old. Again, she advances with the upset victory over Krachikova, who has just been so hot and cold all season long. When she has it, she has it. When she doesn't, she really doesn't. And again, the errors just began to pile up for her. So she gets knocked out two and two. The always dangerous Jasmine Paulini, 6-4 in the third over Haddad Maya. Paulini now up to a new career high, 30 in the live rankings. The 27-year-old has had a sneaky, sneaky successful season. You look for her, uh, not just obviously at the tour level, but her success at 125 as well. 33 and 26 overall on the year. Uh, That, of course, includes three finals, one at the tour level in Palermo, two at the 125 level of Florence and Makarska. Good victory for Paulini, who, by the way, then advances to the quarterfinals over uh, round of 16, excuse me, with a 6-4 third set second round victory over Yua Yuan. Again, three first round upsets there. Your fourth upset, Magda Lynette, the 2023 Australian Open semifinalist who reached a final a couple of weeks ago in Japan. 
continues her success to start this Asian swing. 6-2 in the third. She knocks out Victoria Azarenka to advance to round number two. Those were the seeds knocked out in the opening round. Seeds who looked good. Iga Swiatek. the forehand was just so much better. Even if Cerebes Tormo broke her, I think, three times in the second set. Sviantek 6-4, 6-3 over Cerebes Tormo. Just was crushing backhand returns of serve, was willing to extend rallies with Cerebes Tormo until she got Cerebes Tormo perfectly stretched where all even the quick Cerebes Tormo could do was pop up some sort of slice for Sviantek to pounce on. The slice just wasn't available for Cerebes Tormo. It's such a significant part of her game. Sviantek takes that away. Now, again, she was under pressure on serve still. Very impressive win for Iga, four and three. Only thing more impressive than that was Sabalenka's victory. I mean, she crushed Sonia Kennan, who obviously finaled San Diego, semifinaled Guadalajara, back inside the top 50, Sabalenka one and tutor. They're playing different sports. Sabalenka just was never, her, she was never affected by anything Kennan was doing. She looks like a world number one, a one and two victory again. You hope we get Sabalenka, Sviantek, because I still think those are pretty clearly the two best players in the world, regardless of what else has happened of late. And again, I'm not saying Coco Goff's not in that discussion. Again, I think we have a pretty clear top five on the women's side. I might say Sabalenka over Iga for the first time in my... You know what? I would. Sabalenka's playing better than Iga right now. I'd still put Iga two, Goff three. Pagula four, Rabakana five, and feel pretty good about that top five power rankings as of this moment. Now, again, it's just because Sabalenka is playing better than Iga right now. I still think Iga is the best player in the world. Again, I like it, the concept of calling her world number two just doesn't stick in my head right now. Anyway, Sabalenka flawless in a one and two victory over Kennan. Rapid fire through the rest of the results. What was notable? Jennifer Brady, straight sets over Peyton Stearns. Good to see the former slam finalist returning to Foreman. Has she recracked the top 100? Jennifer Brady back up to 221, though, has done it on such few events. So, again, extraordinarily impressive. Another win for Caroline Garcia. She continues to look to hold on to her top 10 spot. By the way, speaking of Coco Goff, was up for love. Had a look at 5-love, ECAT, Ekaterina Alexandrova, top 25 player. Talk about a brutal round one matchup for each side. She got hot, started hitting line drives down the line, pressuring all sorts of Coco Goff forehands. In the end, Goff too physical. Just, again, has so many different plans at her disposal. 5-3, and three, she advances to round number two. First time seeing her since she captured her first slam title. Uh, so a good win for Goff. Uh, you look at the other, again, notable matchups. How about Gracheva 6-1 in the third over Potapova. Martic, 7-6 in the third over Kirstea. Kasakina took her five match points, finally got there, fought off a match point on her way to a 10-8 third set tiebreak victory over Meyer Sharif. Wang Xinyu uh, gets a win over Vera Zivanareva. Wang Xiyu knocked out 6-3 in the third by Kvitova. Samsonova, impressive victories over Parks. And then Petra Kvitova to advance to the round of 16. And then I would say last two, Rabakina. Welcome back. 1-2 and two over Jung Chin Wen on a blink of a 3-5 and five over Adana Vekic, who has struggled of late. Those were, that's my rapid fire through the round one results. Now again, Samsonova, a big straight set 4-5 and five victory over Petra Kvitova. Kalinina backing up her win over the seed to knock out Daria Seville. Uh, Seville, excuse me. 
You look at the round two matchups left on the board. I mean, I don't love the round two matchups. Andriva Pavlichenkova, I'm in on. Oh, Kostyuk Jabur Love. Fruvertova Sakari. Eh. Oh, Wang Xinyu Kasakina. That's a pretty fun one. Again, those who haven't watched Wang Xinyu, the lefty has been flirting in a new career high in the top 40s over the past couple of months. She's got the weapon. She should beat Kasakina in that matchup. So I guess Kasakina's on upset alert. Tatiana Maria versus Rabakina is a fun contrast of styles, but Rabakina should cruise in that one with how clean she'll have to hit the ball. But I think it's after that round. I think it's the round of 16 where things are going to start to get particularly fun on the women's side in Beijing. And again, projected quarterfinals. Sabalenka, Rabakina, I feel pretty confident that one's going to happen. Pagula, Jabur, I feel less sure about Jabur, who of course wins the last week in Ningbo. Uh, she's going to have to take on Kostyuk, then Samsonova, then the potential winner of Pagula Ostapenko in that quarterfinal. I mean, Pagula Ostapenko, by the way, round of 16, ain't a break either. I mean, come on now. Pagula Ostapenko, that's the best quarter. Pagula, who plays Blinkova tomorrow, tonight, whatever it may be. Winner plays Ostapenko. Samsonova plays the winner of Kostyuk Jabur. That could be the finals alone, and I'd be in. That's a loaded quarter. Certainly the most fascinating. Sakari versus Goff, the projected quarterfinal in uh, the Goff quarter. That would be very fun, particularly given how well Sakari has played of late. Sviantek's projected quarterfinal would be ninth-seeded Caroline Garcia, who, by the way, I think that would be her 12th quarterfinal of the season. And she's tied, I believe, with Sviantek and Sabalenka for the most— on the year. Now, again, they've come at a much different level than Sabalenka and Iga, but hey, double-digit quarterfinals, you had yourself a successful season. Right now, according to Tennis Abstract, Iga's the favorite, 32.5% after that. Goff, 19-6. Sabalenka, 15-2. It's probably because Rabakin is in her section, who's next at 11-3. Then you've got Pagula, 8-1, but that's just a loaded, loaded quarter of the draw. It's an awesome event. You got all the best players in the world, again, competing. You look at the uh, the top of the rankings, all the top seven players in the world still alive. Obviously, Von Drosova got knocked out. The only top 20 players who, I should say, the only top 25 players who aren't in the draw this week, number nine, Karolina Muchova, number 14, Belinda Bencic, number 25, Alina Svitolina. After that, not only every player in the top 25 you add Danielle Collins in the mix. That's every player in the top 32. And, you know, you take out Pliskova and Stevens as well. They've got, what, 33 of the top 40 in action in Beijing. It's a 1,000-level event. It should have a loaded draw. That's precisely what we have on the women's side. So, again, we'll be talking about that, I am certain, throughout the course of the week. Last but certainly not least, let's talk Astana final. Has Sebi Korda had a good year? Scholars are asking. You look for Korda. He's played 34 matches overall on the season, now 22-12 and 12 overall. He's reached his second final this season. First came in Adelaide, now here in Astana as he survives 6-7-7-6-7-6 against Hamad Medvedevich. There were no breaks of serve in that match. A lot of plus-one tennis. I thought Medvedevich was the more fluid mover. Korda, more decisive, more powerful with his ground strokes. He matched him again, serve for serve, spot for spot. 6-7-7-6-7-6. Six, seven, seven, six, seven, six. It looked like an indoor hard court match should, and yet again, Korda's ability to strike backhand down the lines. How 
definitive he was on the return of serve in those tie breaks in sets two and three. Second final for him overall in the season. Now he's only faced one top 50 player to get to this final, but 22 and 12, he's on the precipice of a new career high. He's currently sitting at 25 in the live rankings. That is his career high. If he wins this final tomorrow, he'll surpass Nicolas Yari for up to 22 in the live rankings. That would be a new career high. He's currently 30th in the points race, despite accumulating just 22 wins overall on the season. I don't know if he's definitively better at anything because I just don't know how healthy he is right now. But between the month of January, and again, he's now made semis or further in three of his last four events. He's won, I'm doing quick math in my head, nine of his last 12 He's rounding into form. It's exactly the ending the 23-year-old was looking for to his season. Just, hey, I'm a top 50 player. As I continue to get further and fitter and fitter, I should continue to progress further and further up the rankings. So again, good finals appearance for Seppi Corder. He'll take on an Adrian Manorino who is just as confident, as fluid, as fit as I have ever seen him. Manorino into his third final of the season. They've all come since the month of July. Uh, this time he knocks out Seppi Ofner, 6-4, Manorino again, career high in tour level victories this season. He's now 37-25 and overall on the year. He's made the quarterfinals or further at eight different tour-level events into, again, what is his third final of the season. It's it's crazy. It's just how, again, it just feels like he's never working that hard because the swing is always in form. His ability to absorb pace, you know, the harder and the heavier spin you hit back at him, the more he enjoys it because then he can just come over the top of it that much more easily. He can put the ball, you feel like, drop it on a dime anywhere in the court. It's very fluid. You know, again, it's a very fluid player versus the overwhelming power of Sebi Corda. I actually lean Corda, I think, in the matchup. But, you know, again, you look at the tennis abstract, Corda 52.2% favorite first career matchup between the two. Fun head-to-head. We'll lead with that tomorrow. No, we won't. We'll start with the Beijing semifinals. But that will be closer to the top. I'll spend more time watching Astana. Again, with all due respect to the Medvedevich, Corda matching for Hamad Medvedevich. It's worth noting, again, he's into the top 100 of the live rankings for the first time in his career. Uh, A massive moment for him, but I feel like I talked about him so much last week. I would just be repeating myself if I went into it again today. That's all your tour-level action. Now, coming up this week, we will have another U.S.-based challenger in Tiburon. So many of our favorites, Alex Mickelson, the, the teenage American, continuing to progress towards the top 100. He wins a couple of matches this week. I believe he can get himself there. Dennis Kudla won a challenger, obviously, in um, in Columbus a couple of weeks ago. Abdullah Shelby coming off of his Charleston Challenger title. He is right back in the draw. Uh, We've got Lexi Galarno, who, of course, was a finalist in Columbus. Do we have Oliver Crawford, who was last week's finalist in in Charleston? I apologize for stuttering here. I do not see him in the draw, but plenty of players with college ties. Joe Monday, the Tennessee All-American. Patrick Kipson, former A&M All-American. Richard, former UVA number one. Stevie Johnson, the GOAT. Stefan Destanich. It's a battle between two USC All-Americans. Johnson, Destanich, round one. That'll be fun. Lerner Tien, speaking of USC successes, the two-time Kalamazoo champions in the draw. He'll face a qualifier round number one. 
Kudla versus Tomich. That's a fun name. And then keep an eye on the young American Ozan Barris. He was a junior U.S. Open doubles champion, Michigan State number one All-American. He'll face Tristan Schoolkate in round number one. If you haven't seen the weapons of Barris before, prepare to be impressed. Also prepare to be impressed by another one of our challenger draws, I believe, happening in France this week. Jack Draper, who got knocked out by Thomas Mychek in yesterday's final. They're both right back in the draw. You like young talent. You've got Jakob Menzik, Dino Prismich, Dom Stricker, uh, Gab Diallo, unfortunately, already knocked out in round number one. But guys like Arthur Ferry, Charlie Broom, going to pick up the mantle in terms of players with college ties. You've got David Goffin in the draw, Marc-Andre Hussler. Maxime Cressy. That's a loaded draw. We'll keep our eye on that undercard event happening this week. And then, of course, uh, you've got action uh, happening in Alicante. Why do I want to bring up that Alicante challenger? Because guess who's back, baby? It's our guy. Pablo Carreño Busta, perennial top 20 talent, has missed the majority of the season with injury. Brutal first-round match for him as he's going to take on third-seeded Pedro Martinez, round number one. But he's in the draw. You've got the talented young American wildcard, Darwin Blanche, in the main draw, as is Emilio Nava. So some things for us to monitor happening at the Challenger Tour this week as well. That said, again, the headline, the battle for the pecking order in Beijing. We've got Alcaraz versus Sinner, time number, uh, matchup number eight. Medvedev versus Virev, matchup number 17. I think it was 28 of the top 32 players in the world in action on the women's side. We got plenty of tennis down the season's home stretch to enjoy. And of course, we'll be back each and every day here on this show to keep you up to date on everything that happens in the tennis world. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an enemy job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for the fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Like, rate, subscribe, review, share with your friends. Until next time, though, you know what we say? Hey, that's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.